Good morning, church. So good to be with all of you today. As Carol said, my name is Matt. I'm the student ministry director here at River Ridge. And I just wanna say hello to all of you joining us online. It's such an honor to have this opportunity just to come together. Isn't it great just to be together again in the same room? I think we took that for granted. Yeah, yeah, you can celebrate that. So nice to know that we're kind of on our way, hopefully on the better end of things so where we can see each other more and, and spend time together because we were created for this community. And, and I, I have the opportunity to spend time with students. So I don't know if you know this, but most students never really took COVID off. They kind of spent time together all the time, regardless of what we said, but we were able to spend time outside. And I get this opportunity to spend time with students uh, every Sunday morning in Wired and every Sunday night with our high schoolers. And once a month, we have what we call momentum. And this was last Sunday night where we actually bring everybody together. We get all the middle schoolers and all the high schoolers in one room at the same time. It's just such an exciting, so much excitement, so much passion all together, kind of bottled up. And last week we actually had what we called a block party with uh, inflatables and we had an uh, ice cream truck and we always do a full set of worship and a message. I got a couple pictures I want to share. Uh, here you can see one of our volunteers. This is Will sacrificing, you know, for the students, spending time with him. I got another picture some students enjoying some ice cream. Shout out to Huskies. Thanks for bringing that for us. Uh, here's uh, some, some of our leaders leading in worship. And this last picture, this is my friend Cole. I think he's sitting here this morning. Cole actually, uh, so for those of you who don't know, Cole actually played football at the collegiate level. And we were trying to get middle schoolers to compete against him in this game. And you can see that he's just having the time of his life. It is so much fun spending time with the students. Uh, and they say student ministry is all just fun and games, right? It's all just fun and games. But I truly love leading the students. I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to spend time with them, to help them take next steps in their relationship with God. I'm so thankful that I don't have to go and get a real job, right, everybody? I can go spend time doing, just sacrificing week after week, doing things that are so hard, so tough, playing disc golf, all that stuff. Um, but honestly, if you're here and you're a middle school or high school student, I would love to have the opportunity to get to know you. Uh, if you uh, are a parent or a grandparent of a student, then please reach out to me. I would love to spend some time talking to you about our role in student ministry. And if you're an adult and you've seen these pictures just now and you're like, man, I wish I could do that. Well, you can, we have a place for you. I would love for you to come out and join us. Just hang out with the students, uh, whether it's in middle school and high school, we have lots of roles available for that. So enough about that. We are in the middle of this series that we call We Are The Church. And I really think, I really think this has been a good opportunity for us as a church to kind of recalibrate who we are, right? To kind of set our mind back to how that early church Focus, like how they launched, what they did. And this has just been a good opportunity. I think a lot of this has affirmed us as, as a staff, as, as we're heading the right direction. A lot of it's challenged us to kind of make sure that we're, we're moving the right way. Um, see, ultimately the church is just a movement of people. And I think the church, I think every church deals with this at some point where they stop moving. They, they stop moving. They forget why they even started in the first place. So, so I think it's good for us as a group of people, as the church, to be reminded of some things, right? Some things like generosity, some things like baptism, some things like boldness, some things like the gospel. I don't know if you were here to hear what Andy said last week, but man, I really, I thought that was like a foundational message for us as a church. He said that um, two questions that guide the gospel Center church, right? One is, do you need to put anything in front of faith alone in Jesus to be saved? And two, is there anything that we need to add for the sake of community? 
See, honestly, I think this is what the first church was thinking about. Like it's so simple, but, but yet we need to make sure we're going in the right direction. And I think, I think most churches today, most Christians would agree that salvation alone through Jesus is all you need. However, what that looks like for each and every person is different. See, we're all in different phases of spiritual growth, right? And that's where Andy shared, it just gets messy, right? Because we have people all over the spectrum. Well, today we're gonna to continue our journey through this book of Acts, and we're gonna look into one of those messy situations. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your guides, go ahead and pull those out. We're gonna be in Acts chapter nine. And as a church, we also talk about, we try to remove as many barriers as possible to reach everyone with the gospel of Christ. And today we're gonna to read about someone, we're gonna read about someone who is as far from Jesus as possible, but he's also someone that wasn't even trying to be reached, right? This guy was actually adamantly against the church. And just to catch everyone up, we started this whole series with this one verse in Acts 1-8 that says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So we talked about how the apostles waited at Pentecost. They received God's Holy Spirit, and then they had this power. They were able to perform these miraculous signs and wonders, and their numbers were growing daily. Right, we talked about how they were selling all their possessions and they were just giving to the poor. We talked about how, how they were preaching the gospel boldly. People were being baptized daily and their numbers were exploding. See, this caused the Jewish leaders to become upset. They were very angry to the point where they began to arrest the apostles. They began to, to falsely accuse them of things, put them in prison. And ultimately this led to the first martyr in Stephen. And, and this this single event, what seemed like this awful thing that happened, that somebody was killed, actually fulfilled what God said. He said, you're not just gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you're gonna be in Judea and Samaria. So when he was martyred, they started fleeing to all these different towns. And it says they went to Judea and Samaria and Damascus, which we're gonna talk about today, but God's word was being spread. It actually pushed them to follow what he had said. So now we have this church scattered. We have the, the apostles fleeing to different cities, preaching the gospel, and in walks this guy named Saul. And if you've been around church, you've probably heard this name enough to know who this guy is. But this guy named Saul, first thing to note is he's referred to as Saul and Paul, kind of throughout the New Testament. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name. Uh, it goes interchangeably. Saul, Saul was not a friend of Jesus. Okay, like you, it's easy to see that in just a few scriptures, but Saul was not a friend of Jesus. We're first introduced back in, back in Acts chapter seven, where he approves of the stoning of Stephen. Um, now what we need to understand though, is that this guy named Saul, he wasn't evil. He wasn't an evil person. He actually loved God very much. He just believed without a doubt that Jesus was wrong and he was right. He was a devout Jewish leader and, and he was trained under the best of the best, knew God's law inside and out. He just thought Jesus was wrong. So we begin today in Acts chapter nine and verse one. And it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here in this very first, very first verse, we see Saul's passion for ending this Jesus movement. He's so passionate that he wants to travel all the way back to Damascus, all the way out there to hunt down these Jesus followers. Now, it's worth mentioning that Damascus was not like the next town over. It's not like he went down to Winfield, right? It's like 150 miles away. 
Says it was around 150 miles away. So, so maybe for perspective, it was like us going to Clarksburg, right? We're walking to Clarksburg and I-79 doesn't exist, right? We're actually going through the terrain, crossing the streams. We're going out there hunting these Jesus followers. So you could say that this guy was all in on finding these people. Look at what happened next in Acts chapter nine, verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now it says that those around him heard the sound, but they could not see anything. Next verse, Saul got up from the ground and as he got up from the ground, he opened his eyes and he could see nothing. He became blinded. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or did not drink anything. See, Saul, Saul's almost there. He's almost in this city, Damascus, and he has this encounter with Jesus. So, so for perspective, like we're on our way to Clarksburg, we passed the Weston exit, right? We know exactly where, who we're gonna get and we're gonna drag him back here and he's ready to do this and then boom, this happens. Like out of, out of nowhere, this bright light appears. Um, he encounters Jesus and it's awesome. It's amazing, it's in your face and it's what I would bet is the experience that we all wish we had when we met Jesus, right? Like, can, can you imagine Saul sitting in a small group sharing his testimony? Like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna take time sharing how we met Jesus. And, and Saul's just like, well, I was walking down the road and this bright light appeared and then I heard a voice and it was Jesus and then I was blind for three days. So that's my story, what's yours? <laughs> Like, right, nobody wants to be next in the circle, right? You can't compete with that. Uh, um, I was eight years old and I didn't wanna go to hell and I was scared and I went to the altar and prayed, right? Like, that's, that's me, like, that's my story. It just doesn't sound as powerful. But I want you to know this, everyone's encounter with Christ looks different. Every single person's encounter looks different. Maybe, maybe for you, it was somewhat miraculous, right? Maybe for you, you remember the day, the time, the place where it happened and your life was never the same. Maybe for you, it was this relationship just kind of happened over time. You kept getting closer and closer to God and over time you developed a relationship with him. Just know that everyone's encounter is different. But for Saul, it really was this unbelievable moment. This is probably the most amazing and most terrifying thing that's ever happened to him at the same time. And then we pick up in verse 10. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I, lo I love Ananias' response. It's like, Lord, uh, uh, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and, and the harm that he's done to your holy people. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Don't you love like how formal arguments sound when somebody like hears a message and they like, they're going back and forth with God. <laughs> like Ananias for sure knew who Saul was, right? He for sure knew who Saul from Tarsus was. And he's probably thinking like, um, this guy came to find me, 
not me find him. Like, are you confused? Like, you're God, you're God, I know you're God. I just wanna make sure that you meant like Saul from Tarsus, not like Tom from Kansas, right? I just want that clarity. I need to know that in my life. And I just wonder if God laughs at those things. Like, even, even in our own lives, as we question directions that are just so clear to him. But the Lord said in verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, he said, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So God gave clear instructions for Ananias. He, yes, this guy may have a past. Yes, Saul may, may be intimidating, but this is my chosen instrument. He is going to proclaim my name and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. See, I think it's interesting that while Ananias has a role to play, this is not at all about him. His role is vital, but this has nothing to do at all with who he is. It's all about Jesus. He says, you're gonna proclaim my name. This is what happens. Ananias' lesson and our lesson is to never be too sure that we have someone figured out. Never be too sure of that. See, don't be too certain at what God can do in an instant. Look at, look at the next verse. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Following God, he's listening to God, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother, I just love that. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so what's painted here is this picture, this beautiful picture of what Christian brotherhood is all about. See, in the scripture, you see Ananias come in with no agenda on himself. It's all about God and what God's told him to do. That's the only way he could have knocked on that door. See, he's going in on blind faith that this will work out. And when he walked in that room, I love, I love what he said there. He walked in and it was all affirming. There was no judging. He affirms to Paul what he saw was indeed Jesus. He had no judgment when he said, brother, brother Saul. There was no prove yourself. There was no first you have to pay for what you've done. Right, and I think you have to look at this from Paul's perspective too, right? I mean, this was Paul's first encounter with a Christian as another Christian. So think about that. All, all he knew before was law and punishment. All he knew was, was just eye for an eye. And so he's probably thinking like, uh, okay, let's get this judgment over with. I've been blind. I haven't eaten for three days. Let's, let's just pay. I'm ready to pay. Let's get this over with. And in walks this man who three days ago, Saul was on his way to kill. And in walks this man and just puts his hands on him and says, brother. Just think about that. Think about how that moment shaped Paul. Think about how that word brother, so much love, so much grace, so much acceptance, mercy, forgiveness, all in that one word. And from this day on, Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the most influential leader of the early church. So what do we do with this? Well, I think there's four things that we can take away from this story. And the first one is we don't get to pick our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't get to pick them. Jesus gets to choose. It's his church. It's his family, not ours. 
The truth is that whenever we begin to think in our own righteousness and we look around and we're like, oh, not him or not her, it's, it's something within us that thinks that they just aren't worthy, right? That they are too messed up. We have completely forgotten how unworthy we are, right? We begin to think that like, like what we have done has somehow made us more worthy. Like, like compared to others, maybe we have a higher moral standard, sure. But compared to God, that is nothing. Every good thing that we have done for God is so small in comparison to what he's done for us. I love what, they said, what he says in Isaiah 64, 6. He says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Meaning that all the good works that we've done don't even move the needle in earning our relationship, our righteousness with God. See, I think the best way to think about this is like a star athlete, like a star athlete from a small town. Think about it, growing up, they're far better than the competition, right? They're, they're way better. They start, they start looking around them and they think, man, I'm really something. And, and then they go on to the next level, whether it's like an AAU or a collegiate level. And then they start to think, they quickly realize they aren't quite as good as they thought they were. Everybody follow that? Like you think that they look around, they're like, man, I am not as good as I thought. So, so when we begin to think about how good we are, like what, how righteous we are compared to others, we might not be using the right scale. And, and when we think someone is unworthy, whether it's because of their past or maybe even because of what they're currently doing, we, we think they're unworthy. We tend to think that they just don't belong. We think that we tend to think that those who think like us, those who have come to understand what we have come to understand, they can belong, but not if they're not if they're not as far along in their spiritual journey as us, right? Not, not, if, not if they have different political views than we do. See, we pull into the church and we see a bumper sticker from someone on the other side of the issue. And we just get so upset that these are the types of people that would be here. See, the truth is these are the types of people who are supposed to be in our church. We are supposed to have people from all across the spectrum, people who are mature and people who are immature in their faith people with different backgrounds and experience. Listen, because Jesus is greater than anything, any differences, any divisions, any political views, anything that we can imagine, Jesus is far greater. And if we're not careful, then we can develop this attitude, almost this attitude of righteousness. We can become like Jonah. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? He was this prophet that God told to go to Nineveh and he was like, oh, I don't wanna go to Nineveh. And, and then he ultimately went and once he went, to Nineveh and preached, the whole city repented. And how did Jonah respond? Look at how he responded, he became angry. This is just so much like us. Look, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said? Like when I was still at home, when we were talking, when, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I love how he says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. I, I knew that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in love. I knew that you were a God that you, you wouldn't send this harm to them. See, Jonah had forgotten his purpose. He was more upset about, the, what, about what the people at Nineveh had done than what God was doing through him. See, just like Jonah, we can begin to think like this. Of course, we think like, of course, I deserve God's grace in my life, but not them. Look at what they done. See church, we don't get to pick our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's his family. And know this, no one is too bad or too broken to join God's family. See, the truth is we all have someone we know 
who, who we have kind of written off, someone who we know that is just too bad, too broken. God can never reach and change that person. But I think if you look at this story in Saul, Saul isn't just someone who was unworthy. Saul was an arch enemy of the church, right? Even more than just an enemy to the church, Saul would have been a personal enemy to Ananias. He, he, he most likely had Ananias' own friends persecuted. His own friends have been put in prison and maybe even killed. And if you look back in Acts chapter eight, verse three, it says, Saul began to destroy. Saul began to destroy, not intimidate, no, not, not say mean things, not post bad things about, about the church. Saul actually began to destroy. It says, going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He actually destroyed the church. And if you recall, Saul was the one that approved of the first martyr in Stephen. He watched it happen and approved of it. But Jesus didn't just save Paul. Jesus put him in leadership. Look at how he said it in verse 15. Go, this man is my chosen instrument. See, no one is impossible for God to reach and change. So my question for you is this, who is your Saul? Who is that person in your life that you just think is outside the reach of God? Is it someone you work with? Is it someone maybe that has caused harm or personal harm to you or your family? Just know that God is bigger and Jesus is far greater. And the question is, is your response more like Jonas or Ananias? Do you wanna sit on the hillside and watch them pay for their sins like Jonas? Or do you want to be a beacon of hope and let them know that Jesus is just way bigger than anything they could have ever done? See, we are supposed to give to others what God gave to us. And what God gave to us was grace and mercy and forgiveness. You know, Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. We were still his enemies. And through Jesus, God gave us this ability to be called sons and daughters in his family. And we just, all we have to do is give to others what God gave to us. Why is this so hard for us as Christians? I think one good analogy for this is what they call the inherited money syndrome. Now this isn't 100% accurate, but most people, you probably know where I'm going with this. Those who inherited money, they, they quickly think that they actually did something to earn it, right? And when in reality, they just won the gene pool race. That was all it was. It doesn't take very long before they begin to look down on others who just don't have it. And as Christians, we all have to fight this tendency. The idea that, that because we have accepted Jesus, the idea that we have, we have received his grace because now we know right from wrong, because we now have been given forgiveness. We need to remember that it wasn't that long ago when we were on the other side of the fence. I love what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he lists all these bad things that people done. And then he said, this is what some of you were. This is who we were. We didn't earn our way into the family. No, no, we were all adopted into this family. And if we're not careful, then we can quickly forget that. Just like Ananias did when he followed God and said, brother Saul, we are supposed to give to others what God gave us and God gave us grace. 
It was his one-way love toward us that allowed us to enter into his family. We're simply asked to do the same to others. Now, this isn't easy. For those of us that think we're good, this idea of grace is frustrating. But just remember, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous acts are just like filthy rags. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way. Now, now good works do serve a purpose, but it's not to earn our way into God's kingdom. It's to share what God has given to us, to others. See, the best picture for us to think of is this idea of God's grace as an endless supply and us as a pitcher, like this right here. In America, this is an endless supply for us and we are the pitcher. And for us, as God's grace is poured into our lives, we can't give it back to him, but we can overflow it into those around us. We can overflow it into our neighbors, into our workplace, into those that we know. This is a hard thing to do. The only way that we can do this is with a renewed mind. See, this kind of thinking in a world where so many people are ready to just write people off, this is completely out of step with the rest of the world, actually pursuing the Saul in our life. We are called to align our values and actions with scripture, not the world. We're called to represent Jesus as the single biggest thing in our life. Romans 12, one and two says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, there it is, by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. See, don't conform. Just because of the rest of the world is okay with it, don't conform. We follow God's word, not the world. And it tells us otherwise. And we're to be transformed. I love that it's the passive tense, right? It's not that something we are doing. God is do, has already done it in us. We are transformed. It's a supernatural deal. You need God. You can't produce this on your own. And then by the renewing of your mind. So here it is. God wants to change you, but you have to change the way you think. It's so true that our lives move in the direction of our strongest thoughts. And I wanna tell you something about my life with God. When I see a lot of things that God changes in me, it's not from changing what I do as much as it is allowing God to change the way I think. See, that's where most transformation has happened in my life. This isn't as much about uh, as, as it is us as it is letting God change the way you think. See, in order to see lasting changes, it's only possible by surrendering to God's will as first in your life. So I have to let God transform me, transform me into a new person by changing the way I think. But before I can go to that person and help them change the way they think. So you can't expect God to change things going around, on around you until you actually let him change you. And when God changes you, you know what could happen? you begin to see people differently, just like Ananias. You could see them for, God, for who God created them to be, not what they've done or not who they currently are. And you could be the person who makes all the difference in the world for them. You, you could be like Ananias who walks in the room and just puts his hands 
over his eyes and says, Brother Saul. See, we have that opportunity each and every day. We all have someone in our life that we could reach and that needs to hear this message. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, thank you for your word. God, I just pray right now as I look around the room and just think about all the different experiences we've had with you. Whether our experience was miraculous or ours was not as exciting. God, I just pray that you would allow us to listen to, to your word and be like Ananias, where we just kind of fly in in this one little verse, this one little chapter of the Bible, and we're used. Because God, we know that life is temporary and it's, it's up to us to do what we can with the time that we have. And God, just like Ananias was able to, to change the world, uh, Paul changed the world, but through Ananias, you allowed him to be used. God, I pray that you would help us to have that same kind of vision. God, to have that same kind of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you've shown to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we go from here. In Jesus' name.